From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Neff. She's an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas. Dr. Neff studies self-compassion, a term she put on the map about 20 years ago. Think of it as treating yourself the way you treat a close friend. That is to say, supportive, understanding, kind, but also honest. Because many of us spend our lives doing just the opposite. We rake ourselves over the coals, going over every mistake, real or imagined, a million times, in part because we think that being hard on ourselves is the key to success. But Dr. Neff says we've got it all wrong. She argues that if you want to learn from painful experiences, you're better off being self-compassionate. Plus, it's more conducive to creativity and experimentation because there's less of a reason to fear failure. Dr. Neff has a new book out called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. In it, she argues that self-compassion doesn't simply mean changing ourselves. It also means changing the systems that cause us harm. So here is Dr. Kristen Neff. I hope you enjoy it. Dr. Kristen Neff, welcome to Road to Resilience. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. So self-compassion is not a scientific or a technical word. It's an everyday word. And it's a nice word. But for me personally, before I became acquainted with your work, it kind of hit this tripwire of self-compassion. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, And your work has changed how I see self-compassion. So I was wondering if we could just start with your definition of self-compassion, then go into the components of it. Right. Yeah. So um, I wrote a paper defining self-compassion almost 20 years ago. And normally when people think of self-compassion, they think like taking it easy on yourself, being gentle with yourself. And that's actually not the way I define it. I mean, so the easy way to think about it is being a good supportive friend to yourself, treating yourself as in the, with the same compassion that you would naturally show to someone you cared about. But I wanted to be able to measure self-compassion to see if it, I could empirically study it. So in my model, there are actually three components to self-compassion. Uh, one is kindness, which is the one we think about, right? So being supportive, warm, understanding towards yourself, encouraging yourself as opposed to like shaming yourself into doing something. And, and really in the scientific literature, compassion is considered a motivation rather than an emotion. It's not a way we feel, it's actually the motivation to alleviate suffering. So if you look at the brain experiencing compassion, the parts of the brain associated with planned movement, you know, readiness to help become active. So in in one way, self-compassion is the desire to help oneself be well and healthy and not to suffer. But it's, it's more than that. There's two other components that I think, I really think need to be there in order for it to be a healthy and stable mind state. One is actually mindfulness. We've heard a lot about mindfulness these days, but you really, from my point of view, you can't be self-compassionate without mindfulness. So mindfulness is the ability to be aware of what is um, without resisting the reality that this is what's happening, right? Uh, Instead of getting lost in things or ignoring things, we have some equanimity. It's like, okay, this is what's happening. We have some space with whatever's happening. And uh, we need to be have mindfulness toward our pain in order to be compassionate toward that pain. So if we kind of stiff up or lip it, you know, just kind of barrel through and ignore it and just kind of, you know, 
be strong and not even focus on the fact that we're struggling, we can't give ourselves compassion. It'd be like a friend who called you up and said, hey, John, I really need to talk to you. I'm struggling. You're like, I'm too busy. I, I can't. I don't have time. I need to focus on something else. You, know, you can't give compassion to your friend if you ignore them. Um, so we can't ignore our pain. We can't like, just shove it down. At the same time, we can't be identified with it. I call it over-identification. What this means is when we're lost in it, when we're fused in it, like if, we're, if all we see is how terrible we are or how terrible our life is, well, we don't have any mental space to step outside of ourselves and say, hey, you're having a hard time. Can I help? Right, So we need that perspective provided by mindfulness toward our pain in order to give ourselves compassion. In some ways, temporally, it's the first step of self-compassion. Uh, and then, so we, we recognize that we're struggling and we give ourselves kindness. But we have to do it in a particular way, and that's in a connected way. Right, So the word compassion in the Latin, passion means to suffer. It's always aimed at suffering, like by definition. Uh, and by the way, when I say suffering, it may be big suffering, maybe it's a little suffering, like you stubbed your toe. Any, any sort of unpleasant or difficult experience falls in this realm. But the calm means with. So it's a, way, it's, it's a connected way of being with suffering. So if I have compassion for you, John, I would feel like, hey, I've been there, you know. If I pitied you, I'd feel sorry for you. I'd feel separate from you. You would like it if I had compassion for you, I suspect, but not like it if I had pity for you. So they're very, very different, right? And so the same thing with self-compassion. We need to feel connected in our experience of imperfection or failure or struggle. So self-pity is actually not healthy. Self-pity is poor me, woes me. It kind of exaggerates the extent of how bad it is for us. We feel isolated from others. We go down that rabbit hole um, feeling so separate. It's actually not healthy. Compassion is simply... You know, hey, everyone's imperfect. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone struggles in life. Yeah, some people struggle more than others, granted. But the human condition is one of struggle. And so we remember that. And the reason that's so important is, well, when we forget that, when we feel like something's wrong with us because we're imperfect, you know, something's wrong with us because we're struggling, what that does is it makes us feel isolated. And it kind of adds insult to injury because not only are we struggling, we feel all alone and we feel weird, we feel abnormal, we, you know, we feel shame about that, and it makes it that much worse. So common humanity is really what gives us um, kind of the wisdom element of self-compassion. It really allows us to see how we're part of a larger whole, a larger unfolding, um, and that we aren't alone. I found these two revolutionary, especially the mindfulness um, and the mm -hmm. common humanity. The mindfulness because it's a reminder that Self-compassion is not for the faint of heart, that in fact it involves yeah. holding and being with your pain, not suppressing it. It's quite the opposite. So it takes quite a lot of opposite. courage yeah. to be self-compassionate. It does, yeah. So Brene Brown likes to call mindfulness a courageous presence. <laughs> and it does take courage to be present with pain. You know, it's not sugarcoating. It's not pretending everything's fine when, when, it, when it isn't. It's not pre pretending I didn't fail when I just really fell flat on my face. It's not sugarcoating. It's saying, okay, yeah. and this hurts. We have to open to the fact that it hurts. Um, pain hurts, whether it's because we, we did something to someone else or they did something to us or life's difficult or whatever is the source of their pain. Pain hurts by definition. And we need some bravery to open to that, and to acknowledge it. And if we don't, we can't work with it and we can't heal it or we can't do anything about it either. Right. And the common humanity as well. It's, it's such a... 
a an important reframe to me. I think of suffering as so isolating, right? And suffering puts you in this hole. And so to think of it as as instead of, of a hole, as a bridge to other people, to the common experience, that yeah. to me, I don't know, that that changes everything to me. It, it does. And it's funny, common humanity, a lot of people, I think, struggle with it because they feel like, does this mean I'm belittling my suffering? Well, everyone suffers. So therefore, my suffering isn't a big deal. So you have to work with this skillfully. Again, it is really a wisdom aspect of self-compassion. It doesn't belittle anyone's suffering. Quite the opposite. It says everyone is worthy of a compassionate response. You know, we, we tend to dehumanize people. Either we dehumanize other groups of people, you know, those people over there in that part of the world. I'm not really going to think about them as human beings worthy of compassion. Uh, or we dehumanize ourselves. You know, everyone else is worthy of compassion, but I'm not because I'm fatally flawed and I'm awful. Right. So it includes everyone in the circle of compassion and it simultaneously validates each unique individual's experience at the same time that it doesn't, it recognizes that the definition of being human is struggle, right? That's when you say it's only human, that's exactly what it means, right? Um, And so it's very important that we have that wisdom. Before you studied self-compassion, you studied self-esteem. And I think those are two terms that get confused. And so I want to ask you to tease those apart and explain why the research supports self-compassion as a better alternative. Yeah. So, yeah, I did two years of um, postdoctoral study with with a a leading self-esteem researcher. Uh, It was actually because I was getting interested in Buddhism, and she also studied self-concept development. And I wanted to know, well, what is this thing called the self, and how does it develop? And so as I got more into the self-esteem literature... At that point, this was in uh, around 2000 or so when I did this postdoc, psychology was having a big backlash against self-esteem. So for years and years, it was considered like the be-all and the end-all of well-being because it's linked to things like psychological health very strongly. Uh, And there's nothing wrong with self-esteem. So self-esteem is, you can define it just as a positive evaluation of worth. I feel like a good person or I feel like a bad person or I'm somewhere in between. Uh, And it's better to have high self-esteem than low self-esteem, definitely, for psychological well-being. The question is, how do you get it? Why do you feel like a good person? So in a way, self-compassion is an unconditional source of self-esteem. It's like, well, I'm a worthy person, not because I'm good, not because I succeed, but just because I'm a flawed human being like everyone else. It's it's always present. Uh, Self-esteem tends to be contingent. In other words, we feel good about ourselves when we succeed. We feel bad about ourselves when we fail. We feel bad about ourselves. So the three main domains in which we invest our self-esteem is um, success and and something important to us. Uh, Perceived attractiveness. For women, that's actually the number one domain in which we invest our self-esteem. And also social approval. And it's not how much your friends and your mother like you. It's like how much other people at work or, you know, in society like you. And so it's contingent on those things. So when we don't succeed or we don't look the way we want to look or people don't react the way we'd like them to react, our self-esteem takes a hit. So you might say self-esteem is a fair-weather friend. It's there for us in the good times. It's fragile. But self-compassion is much more stable over time. Uh, Also, the problem with self-esteem is that it's comparative, right? We need to feel above average to have self-esteem, which is impossible because by definition we're all average. So it sets up this kind of you know, this desire to put other people down or to gossip or even to bully others that comes from the desire to feel superior to others. And self-compassion is about connection, not about being better than others. 
So there's a lot of ways in which um, they both offer mental uh, health benefits. They both offer resilience in the face of difficult um, experiences. But self-compassion is more unconditional. It's more stable. And you don't have to put anyone else down to have it. It's, it's more connecting. Let's talk about motivation. Okay. Because that's where you were talking about the with self-esteem, the um, external factors that make self-esteem possible, whereas uh, self-compassion doesn't depend on those as much. Well, I was going to say this is really important because what we what we find in the research is the number one block to self-compassion, the number one reason people give for not being self-compassionate is people truly believe they need to be hard on themselves right. to motivate themselves to achieve. They I still think, get that. Yeah, they, they think self-compassion is just about like taking a break, taking it easy, being soft on yourself, excusing your behavior. Right. It's actually just the opposite. Self-compassion um, is a powerful motivating force. It's a more effective motivator than self-criticism. But what's driving the motivation of self-compassion is different. So the motivation of self-criticism is basically a motivation of fear, right? Unless you do better, unless you get it right, I'm going to hate you. I'm going to yell at you. I'm going to shame you. So I, you know, that feels really uncomfortable when I shame myself and I beat myself up. So I'm going to try harder so that I don't feel so badly about myself. And it kind of works. I mean, a lot of people got through law school or med school through self-criticism, but it has a lot of downsides. For instance, um, it creates fear of failure. Yeah. When you know that if you fail, you're going to beat yourself up. It creates a performance anxiety, which actually undermines your ability to achieve, at least to things like procrastination, right? Um, it uh, Sometimes it causes you to give up if you think, you know, I might fail, so I'm not even going to try. It's like because you're protecting yourself You're from protecting the yourself, exactly. And also, again, shame is not exactly a get-up-and-go mind state, you know. And shame also interferes with your ability to learn from failure, which is mm-hmm. the problem. If I can't admit that I failed because it's too painful, how can I really look and see, okay, where did I go wrong? Mm-hmm. So self-compassion is the motivation of care, right? I want to do better, not because I'm inadequate for failing, but just because I, I care about myself. I want to reach my full potential. I want to I want to change unhealthy behaviors because I care. So it's kind of a, a motivation of encouragement and kindness. Uh, like the way a parent hopefully ideally encourages their child. Hopefully a parent doesn't shame their child into doing better. Their a parent encourages their child to, into doing better because they, they care about them. And so what we know is, first of all, um, it doesn't create anxiety. So it's linked to less performance anxiety. It's linked to less fear of failure because it's safe to fail, which means it's okay to take risks. And really important, it means that if you do fail, instead of saying, I'm a failure, it's like, okay, I failed. Everyone fails. What can I learn from this? And the ability to learn from your failure, for instance, fosters a growth mindset, um, a, a kind of a learning orientation, and it's actually much more effective in the long run. And another thing that provides, which is kind of linked to the theme of resilience, is a lot of grit, right? So we know Angela Duckworth, who's a friend of mine, says she thinks self-compassion is probably one of the most important factors for developing grit, the ability to stay strong when times are tough. Because when you have your own back, you know, that's going to make you strong. Cutting yourself down is not going to make you stronger when you go into battle. <laughs> Having your own back, supporting yourself, being on your own side, so to speak, is going to help you stay strong when times get tough. And again, the research really overwhelmingly supports that. There's been a lot of research There's on been the a lot of research between yeah. <laughs> self-compassion and resilience. Um, yeah. I've read you cite some of it. Some of the stressors that self-compassion can be helpful with include 
trauma, divorce, combat, um, parenting an autistic child, chronic health issues. Yeah. Say a little bit more about the the connection between those two things. And and is there one study that for you really stands out and illustrates this connection best? Well, the study I like to use as an example, illustrative, is, is with the combat veterans. There's actually been a lot of research on combat veterans. Um, the VA is very interested in teaching self-compassion to combat veterans. And, and the reason I like it is because, you know, combat veterans, actually, they, they experience real war, <laughs> they, you know, especially those who'd seen action overseas. But in a way, life's a war, you know, just to greater or lesser extent, life's a battle. Um, and what they found in the research is people who've, who've experienced combat, they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. Because really what, what self-compassion is, it's a way of holding our pain without being overwhelmed. And when you experience something as traumatic as combat, you, you easily get overwhelmed, especially if you shame yourself. There's a lot of like moral guilt associated with being in combat. Uh, moral injury happens. And just, again, the, the overwhelming stressors of it. So if you don't support yourself, if you don't have your own back, if you don't kind of walk, talk yourself through it with kindness and support, you are going to be overwhelmed. And so a lot of soldiers develop PTSD or you know, think about suicide as a way of ending their pain or turn to drugs or alcohol. And the research shows that self-compassionate soldiers are less likely to think about suicide. They're less likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. They function better in their daily life. Um, and also they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. Yeah, and again, so who do you want inside your head when you're in a difficult situation? Do you, are you your own ally? Again, it's like, I'm here for you. What do you, you need? How can I help? Or it's like, I'm shaming you. You did that wrong. You're horrible. I hate you. What's going to make you stronger? You know, it's so it's kind of so logical if you think about it, but we don't think about it. And again, I think that's for two reasons. One is is simply just our physiology. Again, it's just because we, we go into fight or flight mode and it, it comes on immediately as our natural reaction. So that's understandable. But then also our culture gives us these messages as well. You know, our culture used to give this, uh, this message for our children. I mean, people used to really think that you needed harsh corporal punishment to motivate a child. Otherwise, they'd be spoiled. And now we know from the research, actually, well, it kind of works. But boy, you're going to really mess that child up. You're going to undermine them in all sorts of ways emotionally. It's the exact same thing with ourselves. Part of that list was parenting an autistic child. Yes. And I know your son is autistic, so I was wondering how self-compassion, it's a big subject, you've written about it. Um, what can you share from that experience and how yeah. self-compassion has applied? Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I know firsthand when things are really, really tough, that self-compassion pro- provides resilience because, thank goodness, I had about seven years of solid self-compassion practice under my belt by the time my son was diagnosed. Um, so the, the whole experience, it was so important. I remember actually, I, I was on a meditation retreat. Um, he got diagnosed the day before I left for a meditation retreat. And it was so helpful for me to be able to handle all my difficult feelings. You know, you have feelings like, like disappointment, you know, and this is a person you love more than anything else, any person else in the world. And you feel disappointed and you feel guilty for being disappointed. But, you know, it's true. It's not the plan you signed up for. It's not your vision of what your your experience of parenthood would be like. So I had all these really difficult feelings come up. And I, I first of all, knew I just had a lot to allow myself to experience whatever I was experiencing. Right. To not shame myself for feeling any of these feelings. Um, I allowed all the difficult feelings to arise, but I, I really held myself in the difficult experience, I comforted myself, I soothed myself, 
Um, and more than that, I really kind of committed to helping myself. You know, we'll do it. It's kind of weird with self-compassion because you're treating yourself like a friend. So you end up, you can talk to yourself however you want. It sounds a little weird at first, but like, I got your back. We'll get through this. You know, it's like part of you, your compassionate self is talking to your scared self, or your frightened self. Um, we really are parts. So in a way, it's having a dialogue between your parts. Um, but the ability to, con- you know, intentionally support myself made a huge difference, not only in dealing with this diagnosis, but whenever he would, you know, he wasn't potty trained until he was five. That was tough. <laughs> you know, he'd have these horrible tantrums. I mean, he's doing so well now, but it was it was really tough when he was younger. Uh, and so self-compassion, absolutely, it, it helped me every step of the way, made me stronger, made me more resilient. Um, also made me a better parent, absolutely. Because um, instead of like having to stuff down those feelings, my ability to hold those feelings and work with them and process them allowed me to uh, open my heart more to my son because I wasn't having to shove anything down. I could, The more I could remain open-hearted with myself, the more I was able to be open-hearted toward my son. And also it gave me the strength, the, you know, the, the resources to care for him without draining myself. So I, I love talking about self-compassion for caregivers because there's this insane notion that self-compassion is selfish, as if, you know, we only have five units of compassion. So if you give three to yourself, you're able to get up two left over for someone else. It doesn't work that way. It's additive. The more you give yourself, the more you have available to give to others. And I saw that over and over again with my son. Ever thought about enrolling in a clinical trial? The Mount Sinai Health System has over 800 active clinical trials, each geared toward developing new medicines and treatments. Visit mountsinai.org slash clinical dash trials to see if you're eligible. Mount Sinai, we find a way. Let's talk more about that, about um, caregivers, healthcare providers, because, yeah. you know, I think many people, certainly listening to this podcast, are familiar that healthcare workers suffer from some of the highest rates of burnout and, and distress of any workers in our economy and especially yeah. this past year. Yes. Um, and so I know that you've, you have programs designed specifically for healthcare providers. So Yeah. Yeah, we developed a, a program. We just published it last year. It's called Self-Compassion for Healthcare Communities. And it's designed particularly for professional caregivers. Um, so it's much shorter than... We have a long program, which is an eight-week program, two and a half hours a week. There's like homework and meditation. And the caregiver said, we don't have time for that. Like we barely have time to eat. Can you give us like the short version? So we did, and we taught it during lunch. We gave them pizza. We taught them self-compassion. They had to eat anyway. No meditation, no homework. We just designed practices that they could use on the job. And uh, we found that it made a big difference in terms of reducing their burnout, reducing their stress levels, increasing their self-compassion, also their mindfulness, their well-being. It really made a big difference. Uh, And the way it works is what happens with caregivers is, you know, they've got this term called compassion fatigue. And, you know, Charles Figley defined that term. God bless him. He brought so much wisdom. He, you know, he's the really first one to point out the fact that caregivers, professional caregivers, is very draining. It's fatiguing. This is something we need to look at. The problem is it's not really compassion fatigue. There's a movement to say it should be called empathy fatigue. Compassion is not fatiguing. Compassion, we you know, if you look at the brain, is a rewarding emotion. It feels good to feel connected, to feel kind, to feel loving. Um, empathy is what's so draining. Empathy um, comes from feeling what other people are feeling. 
So the, the human brain is actually designed to resonate with others. We've got mirror neurons. We have whole portions of the brain whose whole function is evolutionarily to feel the emotions of others because that facilitated parent-child communication. You know, they passed on their DNA to us. So especially sensitive caregivers, which people tend to go into caregiving professions if they're kind of empathic in the first place. When you're resonating with other people's suffering, the trauma, you know, COVID patients, death, dying, you know, I worked at, we developed the program in a pediatric hospital, you're dealing with kids with cancer. I mean, it's, it's heavy stuff. And so if you're, if you're empathic, what happens is you are actually feeling the pain of the people you're working with. And so it's the empathy that's draining, right? Not the compassion that's draining. In fact, if you have compassion, First of all, for your patient, that helps. So instead of being lost in the pain, instead of being absorbed by the pain, you're holding the pain with this, these feelings of kindness and connectedness and mindfulness, which actually help resources you. Uh, but again, not only for your patient, but especially for yourself. If you So we developed a practice where we, um, called breathing compassion in and out. So you, you breathe out compassion to the person you're caring for. You kind of you're in the presence of their pain and you kind of imagine that you're sending them compassion and kindness and well wishes. But then when you breathe in, you have to include yourself. If you don't breathe in, you're going to, you know, you're not going to be able to breathe. So you consciously acknowledge this is hard for me. I feel overwhelmed. I feel stressed. I feel burnt out. I feel confused. Whatever it is you're feeling, you validate it with mindfulness. You acknowledge it with mindfulness. Um, you remember your common humanity. I'm not alone. It's not just me. You know, anyone in this position, my fellow professionals feel this. You know, it could feel so isolating. It's not every single person, you know, experiences this. And then really important kindness, you know, asking yourself, what do I need? You know, self-care is great if you have the time for it. But if you don't, at the very least, you need emotional self-care. You, you know, you put your, we taught people to put their hand on their heart or to breathe in for themselves to really emotionally hold their own exhaustion and pain. And it really makes a huge difference. And by the way, we, we have to be careful. It's not like we just throw some self-compassion at caregivers and we say, you don't have to change the system. The system is also broken, right? So we, this is where the fierce self-compassion comes in. I'll talk about, you know, it's not, it, it helps to have self-compassion. It's not enough. We also need to make external changes to alleviate our suffering. You mentioned I guess I'll call it the McMindfulness critique. Yes. That fierce self-compassion seems to be a response to. And the McMindfulness critique is when you tell people to do mindfulness, they're working on themselves and their response to their environment. But what if that environment is really messed up and needs to be changed? What do we do about that? And I think that's where fierce self-compassion comes in. Yeah. So fierce self-compassion, well, can be aimed inward or outward. But it's so so just so I so I break self-compassion into two main forms. There's tender self-compassion, which is our ability to be with ourselves and our pain, right? So this is, allows us to like validate our pain, to soothe the comfort ourselves, and um, kind of remember this is part of life. This is really important. This is the healing power of self-compassion. It allows us to, again, hold our difficult emotions without being overwhelmed. But there's also a fierce side of self-compassion, which is action. So if compassion is concerned with the alleviation of suffering, Sometimes what we need to alleviate our suffering is not to be with what is, but to try to change as much as possible what is. So even though we might accept ourselves unconditionally, we don't want to accept all our behaviors unconditionally. Sometimes we do, we're doing things that are harming ourselves or harming others. So it's not compassionate to accept those behaviors. 
or we're in situations which are unacceptable. If someone's harming us, we're in a toxic work environment or a toxic relationship, or you know, we're, we're in doing what we're doing to the planet or other groups, it's not compassionate just to let that stand. Um, I call it the two energies, tender self-compassion metaphorically is like mother or parent, gentle, soothing. Fierce self-compassion is like mama bear, you know, that fierce protective energy that rises up to protect people we love. So we feel it maybe towards our kids or the people we really love, but we can harness that energy also for ourselves. So for instance, I see the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movements as self-compassion movements. You know, these are people saying, uh-uh, we aren't gonna take it anymore. Stop, no, drawing boundaries, you know, clear lines in the sand. This is not acceptable behavior. Or a lot of the reforms, I mean, the reforms going on in terms of, you know, the workplace. It, you know, I think in the healthcare world, overworking um, the staff as if this is a good thing, fierce self-compassion to say, no, we need to change the system. These are the ways the system is broken. These are the ways the system is causing harm. This is what we need to change. And so that might include getting angry. You know, people often think anger is antithetical to compassion, but when anger is aimed at preventing harm, it's part of compassion. It's only when the anger itself becomes harmful, either to yourself or others, that it's a problem. But if the anger is just this power source that just says, hey, this is not okay, and like it can focus you, it can allow you to be brave, it can um, let people know there's a problem, uh, anger has a place in compassion, right? So these fierce emotions uh, are really, really important. And we need to draw on the power of these fierce, fierce compassion to change our world and also to change ourselves, right? So sometimes we need to say, uh-uh, I can't keep drinking or I can't keep staying in this relationship or whatever it is we're doing to harm ourselves. This mama bear self-compassion says, uh-uh, you gotta do something differently. But it does never mean that the person, that, are, that we are unacceptable, but our behavior or situation may be unacceptable. We, we try our best to change it. When you or your family are diagnosed with cancer, you want the best and most advanced care. At Mount Sinai's Cancer Centers of Excellence, multidisciplinary experts from oncologists to researchers create a team dedicated to you. They develop advanced diagnostic and treatment options while giving compassionate care in a welcoming environment. Learn more about Mount Sinai Tisch Cancer Center at mountsinai.org cancer. We find a way. Mount Sinai. I've talked about on the podcast before harnessing fear. I always just find it interesting, this idea of harnessing emotions that are really powerful yes. and hard yes. to control yes. and associated with both, with usually with negative, as anger is. Yes. Um, so this is why I found that that part about harnessing anger really compelling. Yeah, yeah. And it's especially the reason I wrote the book for women in particular, so my, my book's called Fear Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Um, and it's not that m men need to do this as well. The reason I didn't write the book in a gender-neutral way is that traditional gender role socialization, unfortunately, raises men to be fierce but not tender. You know, boys are called sissies, they're called names, they're made fun of if they're sensitive in a way that's really damaging to men. I mean, I think men are really harmed by gender role socialization because they, this, this power of how do we use kindness and care and comfort to deal with our pain, they don't have access to that, which means that they're kind of forced to use other less productive coping mechanisms. 
right? And that harms men. But women are harmed because they aren't allowed to be fierce. You know, they're called the B word. If they're, they're too fierce or they get angry, people really don't like fierce women. Um, and a really competent woman, people get, they think a competent woman is too agentic, she's too fierce, and therefore she's not tender, she's not nurturing, therefore they don't like her. And that's what, like, that's partly what explains the glass ceiling. And so this is a problem because this disempowers women. And so everyone needs both. Everyone needs to find balance. These are human qualities that unfortunately have been gendered. But I wrote it for women because it was just too complicated to say, well, for men, they got to do it this way. And for women, they got to do it this way. So I just wrote it for women. But again, the principles of balance are human principles that I think we all need. I don't want to give the impression that this is like a three quick things you can do to like master self-compassion. Yeah. But I do want to give people a sense of of what's in the book and what it what it means to cultivate self-compassion and fear self-compassion. So yeah. are there a few exercises? You've shared a few already, but I was wondering if you could you could just give us some examples. Yeah, yeah. So um so one thing we we really rely on is is touch, believe it or not, because for human beings, touch evolved as to be a really important indicator of care, signal of care. That's because, again, for the first two years of life, babies don't have language, and parents communicate safety, care, support, primarily through touch. Also, tone of voice, so those are both important. But with touch, we can actually change our physiology. So typically, we calm ourselves down, we help soothe ourselves through touch. And it can be a tender touch, it can be kind of a soft touch, or it can be like an empowering touch, like if you hold your body, your back straight, you may be a fist on your heart, or something like that, to signal strength and support. Touch is great because it bypasses the brain, <laughs> which is usually full of some story of how awful we are, how awful our situation is. So touch is a direct way to give yourself compassion. Also combined with language is also very helpful. I often say to people, imagine you had a, a really good friend that you really cared about who was going through the exact same situation you were. What would you say to that person to help support them in the moment? And then just try it on with yourself. You know, and it feels weird at first. It does. It feels awkward. It feels fake at first. But you start getting, it's, it's only because the, the critical mean voice feels so normal and habitual. But eventually, over time, you know, some people, the journey may be a little slower, but you take step by step. Eventually, over time, it, it starts to feel normal. And it makes a huge difference, I mean, especially with resilience. When you're going through a very difficult time, you know, and again, this could be, the difficulties because you've done something wrong, you failed, you made a mistake, you feel something you ashamed, you feel ashamed about, or it could be the pandemic, or it could be you know your work life. It, it doesn't really matter with the source of the pain. The more you're able to support yourself during through that pain, have your own back, you know, be kind, be encouraging, the, the stronger you'll be in terms of your ability to get through it without being overwhelmed. You know, some people think of self-compassion as an emotion re regulation technique. I think it's more than that, but that's part of what it does. It helps us work with difficult emotions that normally derail us in a way that doesn't derail us. And that's kind of what resilience is. In the book, you write about working with the UT Austin men's basketball team. Yes. <laughs> and I bring that up only because you talk about teaching self-compassion without using the word self-compassion. Yes, And I yeah. think that's that's very useful. It is, yeah, because um, unfortunately, you know, and I have to say, I write about this in my book, compassion is part of the female gender role, and women have less power than men in society. Mothers have less power than fathers in society in terms of the larger picture. 
And so people think compassion, they think weakness, they think squishiness, which is, I think it's worth looking at that. That's a problem in and of itself. But regardless, that's the system we've inherited, you know, so we think compassion is weak, we think it's soft. So I didn't use, you don't need to use the word. When I taught the um, UT uh, Austin men's basketball team, I just called it inner strength training, which is what it is. You know, it's inner, it gives you inner strength. It's the strength to be able to deal with, cope with debilitating experiences of failure, of you know, difficulty, of stress, of shock, whatever it is you're going through. It, it gives you inner strength. So, yeah, and you don't have to use, even the word self is a trigger word because like, I'm sorry, there's not a, there wouldn't be a men's magazine called self. It's a woman's magazine. It's also kind of a woman's thing, self-help. I mean, 85% of the people who come to my workshops are women, partly because again, it's, it's, it's considered okay in the female gender role, you know, socialization to work on these things. With men, it's like, you know, it's not such a cool thing, which again, I think really harms men. It really disempowers men. It, it prevents men from harnessing this very effective tool that could actually help them. So you don't have to use the word self-compassion. You could call it inner strength training. And it's, it's exactly the same thing. I have, I have a dissertation student who's actually working with athletes. She developed a self-compassion training program for athletes that she calls fail better. In other words, how to harness failure to learn from it. And so you don't, because if, if you're an athlete and you make a mistake and you get derailed by it, you'll, you'll lose the game for your team. You know, it's really harmful. So you need to learn deal with failure productively in a way that's going to help you as opposed to harm you. And so they, they're loving it. She, I don't think she barely mentions self-compassion. She just talks about how to work with failure experiences as an athlete and learn from them and use them to your advantage. And they eat it up. So you don't, you don't need to use the word. I listen to a lot of sports radio and uh -huh. athletes are famously bad interviewees. Uh -huh. And I think it's in part because if you listen closely to a lot of good athletes, they do the self-compassion stuff, right? They'll say some like, you know, you win some, you lose some. All yeah. these cliches that athletes give out, they're actually very wise in this regard. The good ones, the good ones. Yeah, yeah, because the good ones, they, they do that. And the ones who don't and who beat themselves up and they shame themselves, they won't win. Because if you get caught in the loop, a negative self-criticism loop, especially while you're playing the game, it's going to derail you causes performance anxiety, act like literally undermines your ability to, to do your best. The role models you mentioned in the book, I don't wanna I don't wanna not bring up because I thought they were really useful for me in terms of reconceptualizing compassion, self-compassion, especially fear of self-compassion. So uh -huh. for example, the first responder. Yes. Right? That is compassion. Ex exactly, right? So compassion isn't just again about being with suffering. A first responder doesn't say Oh, I'm so sorry. You just got in a car accident. Oh, I feel for you. You know, no. Actually, in some ways, we sometimes have to even compartmentalize that tender response because you got to do your job. You need to be brave. You need to take action. You know, maybe something's on fire. You need to risk your life to save someone. But also for ourselves, I mean, if you're on a second floor of a building that's on fire, you don't want to say, oh, this is so painful right now. You may need to like be brave and jump out the window to save your life. Um, and so taking action is an important part of compassion. Firefighters, you know, police officers, these, all these people, anyone who takes action, teachers, teachers are also really good exemplars of this. They give and, you know, they, they work hard or, or parents who, who work to put food on the table for their kids. These are all acts of compassion. So compassion sometimes is very fierce, is very active, is very brave. 
you know, compassion is what do I need right now to alleviate suffering? And the answer to that question is going to look very different depending on what's happening. And sometimes we need multiple things to help alleviate our suffering. You've been working on self-compassion for, for 20 years. Where do you hope we are 20 years from now? Oh, right. So we're, I, I hope, and I think this will happen, actually. So self-compassion research is following in the steps of mindfulness research. Uh, so, And mindfulness research started about 20 years before self-compassion research. So no mindfulness is everywhere in society. It's fully accepted as a, as a good thing to practice. It's in corporate America. It's in the military. It's in sports. It's pretty much everywhere. Mindfulness is, you might say, infiltrated society. <laughs> and I hope that self-compassion is as widespread that, you know, in the corporate America. For instance, right now, corporate America hasn't really caught on to self-compassion yet even though I think they will because it's such a productive way of dealing with failure, which is so important in the corporate environment and how to deal productively and how to motivate things with a self-compassion as opposed to self-esteem. So I hope it spreads through the corporate world, um, you know, through all, all segments of society. For here's, here's something. I would hope that every single person that goes through med school or any sort of caregiving training would learn self-compassion as an essential part of their training in order to be able to do their job without burning out. I would love to see things like that happen. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. You're welcome. Dr. Kristen Neff is an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas. Her new book is Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. That's all for this episode of Road to Resilience. We're a production of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. The podcast is made by Nikki Cheatham, me, John Earl, and our self-compassionate executive producer, Lucia Lee. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.